0: We're going to be in John chapter 2 tonight. We've stepped out of John chapter 1 after a few weeks there, and we're now entering a section of John's gospel that it really stretches all the way until chapter 12. It's known as the book of signs. It's where John focuses on the revelation of Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah who has now finally arrived. And John wants us to see the glory of Jesus in these chapters. And, and, and through them, he wants us to place our faith in Christ. In fact, that's the whole reason that John even wrote the book. If you flip to the end of John, you look at chapter 20, verses 31, 30 and 31, John writes this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole point of John's gospel is to give you good reasons to believe in Jesus. So these stories that we're about to see, this book of signs we're about to enter into, they aren't just neat little tricks that Jesus performed when he was here. What John tells us in the coming pages is how Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and how Jesus is the Messiah who is the answer to all of God's ancient promises. John wants you to see how wonderful Jesus is, how capable Jesus is, how worthy Jesus is, how loving and kind and mighty and glorious Jesus is. And he wants you to believe in Jesus. And I want you to too. So let's read John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. We find ourselves peeking into this little slice of history that on one level it's it's not all that remarkable it's the kind of thing that happens every day in every city all throughout the world a young couple is getting married but on another level Jesus is there to transform that little Galilean wedding into a revelation of God's glory that's the difference Jesus makes he turns weddings into foretastes of heaven. He turns a party into a mega party. He turns bad news into good news. He turns water into wine. He turns the law of the Old Testament into the grace of the New Testament. He turns ceremonial jars into vats of celebratory wine. He does this Because he's thinking about something much bigger than just this little wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want to, I want to look at this story as a story. It's a story. I want to look at the details of what's going on. And then I want to look at the sign. What is the story telling us? So first, the story. Look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So John's just, he's orienting us. He's been doing this kind of throughout his gospel so far. So far. He orients us to the, the time and place. Uh, remember in chapter 1, we, we saw this, this day, the next day, and so forth. In chapter 1, verse 19, the chronology kind of began when the Jews came to John asking about his baptism. And then the next day, in chapter 1, verse 29, John proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God. On the third day, 139, Jesus took his new disciples home, and on the fourth day, 143, Jesus meets Nathaniel. Now here in 2:1, John says it's the third day. What he means is it's the third day after that day with Nathaniel. <laughs> so this is the seventh day since John started recounting Jesus' acts. Now who cares what day it is? Well, you know what? John usually doesn't. And that's what's so fascinating about this to me. John normally doesn't care at all. When, he, when Jesus is resurrected, for example, he doesn't even ever say it was the third day. The only time in all of John's writings where he cares about days is right here. So it must mean something. Well, what does it mean? Remember in John one. 1 in the beginning. Remember how, when we looked at that, that reminded us of Genesis 1. Well, that's intentional. And now, as we meet Jesus in his public ministry, John is he's taking us on a journey of seven days that correspond in some way to the seven days of creation. But instead of focus, focusing on the, the creating power of Jesus, John is focusing on the recreating power of Jesus. By the seventh day, Jesus has already, in a sense, started recreating things, right? He's recreated the messianic hopes and and realizations. He, He recreated the purpose of baptism. He recreated the hearts of his disciples. And now, at a wedding, he recreates water into wine. John presents to us the one who was there in Genesis 1, But the one who is going to do far more than the whole book of Genesis can even tell us. John is preparing us for something magnificent here. The story is really about to take off. So we care about days for a little while. Because John does. We look at verse 1 again and we see that the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew the couple who was getting married. John just doesn't tell us that. I mean, perhaps they were friends of Nathanael. He was from Cana. Um, Maybe they were old family friends. You know, who knows? But Jesus was there. And based on what happens next, we can assume that Mary had some significant role to play in the wedding party. Uh, Because when a a problem arises, she kind of takes responsibility for finding a solution for it. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, <clears throat> that was a big deal. It might not sound like a big deal to us, but back then it was a big deal. The groom was charged with providing enough wine for the wedding party, which the wedding party lasted like a week. I mean, we, we funneled down to one day. They had a whole week. We don't know how to party at all, by the way. <laughs> like, we just don't get it. They had a week. This was as if the wedding planner came to you on your wedding day at your reception and said, "Well, we made it halfway through, but the food's all gone." I mean, talk about a party pooper. It just ruins the whole mood. You'd have some disappointed guests and you'd be, I mean, how embarrassed would you be? But for this young couple, it was more than just an embarrassment. In those days, it was this was actually grounds for a lawsuit. It's amazing their new life together was threatened before it even got started instead of entering into their new life with joy they might enter into it now under a great burden so mary did not come to jesus with a a minor inconvenience she wanted his help with she came to him with a crisis But you kind of wonder, why did Mary go to Jesus at all? I mean, on one hand, it's obvious, right? He's Jesus. But on the other hand, did what did she want him to do about it? Well, Jesus kind of wanted to know that too. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that verse, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's hard to strike the right tone when you read that. When I I was telling my wife earlier, she's like, I'm not sure that's how he said it. Okay, listen. (laughs) I'm not Jesus. I'm just reading the words. But depending on what your translation says will depend on how confused you might be about the way Jesus is saying this here. Uh, If you have the NIV, at least the older version of the NIV, the, the New Living Translation, for example, this verse will read, dear woman. But the ESV and other translations actually get it right. There is no deer at the front of that. It is just woman. Now, I don't know where you came from, but if I spoke to my mom with that kind of mouth, I wouldn't speak again. I wouldn't be here today. If my kids spoke to my wife like that, no YouTube for a good long while. So what's the deal here? Was Jesus being disrespectful? I mean, we know Jesus never sinned, right? Right? So what's happening? Well, I'll just go ahead and say the, the way he says it isn't as bad as it sounds to us in the English. It's not as bad. He's not being flippant. He's not disrespectful. But it is at best, a there is some rebuke in it. He is saying something by the way he says it. We know it's not unloving because Jesus actually uses the same phrase, from the cross when he speaks to his mother. And there was nothing but love from Jesus on the cross. So why does he say it this way? Well, I think we have to keep reading. What he says next helps us understand. What does he say? He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, whenever John uses that phrase from the mouth of Jesus, my hour has not yet come, what he means is he's talking about the hour of his death. So Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus responds and says, well, it's not my time to die. What? Why does he say that? What's going on? Well, I think what's happening is Jesus is, he's distancing himself from Mary's wishes and staying firm to his mission. In other words, he's not just going to do whatever Mary wants him to do because she's his mom. Because Jesus is there and he has now entered into this public ministry for a very specific reason. And he will not waver from that. And so he is not just pushing her away, but he is kind of setting the boundaries here. Jesus knows, based on the reaction he's gotten so far, that if he were to go public fully right now, he might not make it to that hour. There is opposition already. And so he knows it's now not, now is not the time to reveal himself to the world as the Messiah. Because his hour has not yet come. So he distanced himself from her, letting her know what time it really is. He wasn't a mama's boy. He wasn't going to just do whatever she wanted because she wanted him to. He answered to God's plan only, and no one else would be his boss. His mission superseded his familial relationships. The driving force of Jesus' life was faith, not family. It doesn't mean he didn't love his family. Not at all. It just meant that Jesus knew why he was there. Now, for her part, Mary didn't seem too discouraged because she doesn't walk away with her head down, does she? She seems to get the point. Because then she looks to the servants in verse 5 and says, Do whatever he tells you, which, by the way, is the best advice anyone has ever given. She humbly submitted to Jesus in that moment. You have to think, Mary believed Jesus could do something. Something even miraculous, that's why she went to him. But she got the point. She wouldn't push him into the spotlight. But if Jesus would do something, she sure didn't want those servants to miss the opportunity. D.A. Carson points out that in these two verses, we see two Marys. We see the Mary as mother and the Mary as believer. In verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. Jesus is not our errand boy. He wasn't for his mother and he won't be for us. But if we come to him by faith, we are rewarded. As Carson goes on to say, these two verses, as difficult as they are, help to shape this account of Jesus's first miracle and ensure that the focus is on Jesus's glory, not Mary's, and on the disciples' faith, including Mary's. And by now we've reached what I guess perhaps is the climax of the story where Jesus' glory is revealed. And we're going to look at this a little bit in a a minute uh, more, but I just want to look at what goes on here. Jesus does start to do something. And the details that John includes are important. You see in verse 6, he says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now these jars were, they were a symbol of Old Testament law and ritual. That's what they're there for. They were stoned because it was believed that stone could not contract uncleanness. These were ceremonial washing jars. It's like washing your hands before you go in. But they would sit these things outside the temple and and the, and the people would come and they would wash, symbolically saying, I am unclean, I am sinful and need God's forgiving grace. Everything Jesus does here, he starts pointing beyond kind of the mere facts of the story. Through his actions, he tells the story of the Bible. He is the Messiah who is coming to fulfill the law, to usher in a new age of grace. As Craig Blomberg says, this is a vivid illustration of the transformation of the old water of the Mosaic religion into the new wine of the kingdom. And those pots play a part. They held a lot of liquid, about 20 or 30 gallons, John says. So do the math. That's anywhere from 120 to 160 gallons. (laughs) It's a lot of water. And we know in a minute it's going to be filled with wine. (laughs) Week-long party, guys. Verse 7 says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. John is making sure we know there was no room for some magic trick here. It wasn't as as if Jesus would walk by and add a little wine to the water and trick the palate. No, this was, he was going to turn pure water into pure wine. The time for the ceremonial purification, Jesus is going to say, is over. (laughs) Because he is about to do something brand new. The new new wine of the new age is beginning, and it's going to come through him. And it's not just a little to get us by. I mean, it's overabundant. That's just like Jesus, isn't it? It makes me think of, of perhaps one of the greatest verses in all the Bible in Isaiah 55, verse 1. God says through the prophet, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is what Jesus is doing there. He's he's taking their nothing, and he's giving his everything. This is what Jesus always does, isn't it? He says to us, bring your dirty purification water to me and I'll make something new. Bring that old time religion that never got you anywhere and I'll give you the new wine of the gospel that changes the heart and saves the soul. We can fill our spiritual pots to the brim. But until Jesus puts his miraculous touch upon us, all we will ever have is water. It doesn't matter what we do. But when he touches us, we will have the best wine. Now, look at verse 8. Jesus said, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was like I don't know, a head waiter, something like that. And when he tasted it, he was amazed. Now, he didn't know where the wine came from. John is, is careful to state that. Only the servants, his disciples, and we presume Mary, knew what happened. This is, John is showing us, this is an undercover miracle, kind of. So the master of the feast called the bridegroom, not Jesus, the bridegroom, and said in verse 10, everyone serves a good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Apparently, Jesus makes some really good tasting wine. <laughs> Why? I mean, you can get by with anything at that point. But not if you're Jesus. Because this is more than just a small-town miracle to save a wedding. This is a manifestation of glory to reveal the Messianic age. Like all the best wine, Jesus' was aged. It had all the Old Testament promises and expectations. It held all the sweetness of joy and hope of the Messiah. It carried the aroma of Christ. It sang of notes of the patriarchs and the prophets. It was aged in the parchments of the scriptures and poured out of the glory of heaven. It was the wine of the promised age. The wine of the kingdom of God. And it's that kingdom of God that we need to look now. That's the story. Now let's consider the sign. What does it mean? John says in verse 11, this is the, f- this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now here's the whole reason John wrote this. He didn't write it because it's a cool little party trick that Jesus of Nazareth performed a long time ago. And he just wanted to share it. It's not a novelty act. It would be a big mistake if we looked at this and only saw the miracle of water being turned into wine. And didn't see the miracle worker. Because the whole point is to see Jesus. And notice that John doesn't even call this a miracle. I mean it is a miracle. But that's not how John describes it. He calls it a sign why well what does a sign do it points to something doesn't it it points beyond itself you, you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says Nashville 20 miles you know where you are you know where you're going and it orients you or if you're Dustin and you see a sign that says vinyl records for sale and you get all giddy it might cause an accident But he's not giddy because of of the sign. He's giddy because of what the sign means. John is orienting us here. Not only is this a sign, but this is Jesus' first sign. It's kind of a weird first sign, right? Like, I mean, of all the things Jesus did, if you were to rank the miracles of Jesus in your mind right now, where would you put this one? You might not even think of it. I mean, he raised someone from the dead. He healed the blind. Jesus did some amazing things, but this he chose as his first. Why? Why this one? Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that the Bible opens with a wedding in Genesis 2 and ends with a wedding in Revelation 19. The wedding theme runs just all throughout the Bible. And that helps us understand this passage, I think. What was Jesus doing at the wedding? Well, I mean, he was performing the miracle. We've seen that. And before that, he was just an invited guest. But what do you think he was thinking about when he was there? This is where, when we think about Jesus, not just fully God, but also human, He's there at a wedding. Uh, Tim Keller helped me see this. What do you think Jesus was thinking about there? Have you ever been to a wedding as a, as a, a young, single adult? Maybe some of you are still there. And you're, you maybe are enjoying it. I don't care if you're male or female. If that's you, you're also thinking about your wedding, aren't you? When will it be? What will it be like? Will it ever happen? Well, what if Jesus was thinking about his wedding that day? What would that tell us about what he's doing here? Well, here's what. Throughout the Old, the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the bridegroom of his people. We see this in, 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 for example, places like Isaiah 62, Hosea chapter 2, Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 2. Go home, look those up later. Then in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom in places like Matthew 9, Luke 5, Mark 2, Ephesians 5, Revelation 19 through 21. The image of God as his people's bridegroom runs the entire length of the Bible. It is a major biblical theme. Think about it. Why was Jesus even there that day at Cana in Galilee at that wedding? I mean, if we were there, it would be because, well, we just happen to be born at this time in this place, and I'm of a certain age where I can go to a wedding, and here I am. I was invited. I'm going to go. That's not necessarily true for Jesus, though, is it? Jesus chose this particular time to enter into this world. He was there because about 30 years earlier, he came down in a deliberate act on a mission to save his people from their sins and to wed them to himself. Jesus performed this sign at this wedding not only because it was a tragedy that he could fix, but more truly because it was a foretaste of the kind of wedding he would throw later on. He was thinking about his wedding with his bride, the church. He was thinking about the wine on that day, after the last drink at the last supper, when he said he wouldn't drink it again until he did so with his people in his father's kingdom. He was thinking about what it would cost and how it wasn't too high for him. He was thinking about his death so that he could gain his prize. He was thinking of the wedding supper of the Lamb where the restored universe would be set right and he would make his dwelling with his people and he would wipe every tear from their eye and there would be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death ever again. And his bride would never break his heart because in him they would now be perfect. And he would never break theirs because... His love for them is what spurred the whole thing on, anyway. Now, maybe this sounds like a stretch. You know, to be honest, it did to me first, at first, as well. But the more I think about it, the more I can't get over the fact that there is a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Out of God is deliberate in his actions and in his words. Everything Jesus did that day pointed not just to that day. He wasn't there just saving the wedding. He was pointing beyond. This is how he manifested his glory. Why did he use those ceremonial jars? I mean, that's not a normal place to to, to put wine. It's like, here's a bathtub. I'm going to pour some wine in that and we'll drink from that. They had to have empty wineskins. Why not use those? Because their filling was to say that the law was fulfilled and the new wine was now ready. You cannot put new wine in old wineskins, Jesus is saying. He saves the best for last because he wants to say that the marriage of Jesus and his bride would be the best of all things. It's the thing, in fact, that all of history is moving toward. The belief that this gave to his disciples was the gift that brought his people in. It's the thing he's been doing ever since that day. Jesus was signifying far more than a neat trick that God can do for you. He was signifying the gospel story from the days of old that was now at hand with his coming. Jesus is the true bridegroom. That's the point of this story. Jesus is the true bridegroom who always saves the best for last. He's longing for his bride. He's looking forward to what he would do to set things right. He's looking forward to his wedding, still out ahead, looking forward to the consummation in the age to come. Jesus was at the wedding thinking of his wedding. And I say that because of the way he responded to his mother. My hour has not come. The only reason we have a wedding at all is because of him, because of that death. He was there at that wedding thinking of his wedding, and his heart was filled with longing for his bride. He wanted to show her how thoroughly. How completely, how abundantly, how graciously he would fill all things. I mean, if you read the Bible, you cannot, you just simply cannot avoid this kind of marital language between between Jesus and the church. Jesus longs for us and provides for us with the love of a bridegroom. Yes, he is king. Yes, he is shepherd. But he is also groom. Jesus does not moderately love his bride. He doesn't just put up with us. He adores his bride. He longs for her. He cannot wait to finally have her with him forever. So what does this mean for you? Well, first, if you are a believer, it means that that day in, at Cana in Galilee, Jesus, uh, Jesus was thinking of you. <laughs> Is that not amazing? We are not an afterthought What he did that day was to show you the kind of groom that he is. Now, if you're not a believer, it means that that day at Cana in Galilee, Jesus was doing this so that you might believe in him. He wants you to see that he is what you've been longing for. He wants you to see that all your failed attempts at purity can actually become real in him. He wants you to see that all your shame in life can be washed away in his gospel wine. All your desires for a love that will never end, a joy that will never fade, the wine that will never run out can be yours in him. At a wedding where two people become one new family, Jesus is he's taking the old covenant law and he weds it to himself to make New Testament wine for his people. He does it there in Cana because he will do it there one day in heaven. That day's coming. And he wants you to see that. He wants you to know it, to believe it, to take hold of it. Jesus is signifying the newness he's bringing into the world by showing that his newness is good because it's aged in the oldness of the gospel promises. He's the true bridegroom who has come to wed his sinful people to himself and save his bride by giving her a new name in himself. He will spare no expense. It will be the most lavish thing anyone has ever seen. You will not get part of him, but all of him. And somehow, I don't know how this works, every one of us will get all of him. (laughs) There is no limit to Jesus. You will not get wine mixed with water in some dirty pot. You will get the scripture-aged and glory-infused wine of the kingdom of God. You will receive a husband who always saves the best for last, who doesn't just hope to make a good impression, but who will love and care and provide for you for eternity. And every day will be better than the last. You'll get a new start on life that with with him at the center will never disappoint you, not for a second. You'll get the real hundred-proof Jesus and only him because he's the only one that exists. He makes the end of the party better than the beginning. He takes tragedy and turns it into triumph. He takes sorrow and He turns it into joy. And it's not a mind trick. It's real. It's true. How do we know it's true? Well, in John 16, verse 20, Jesus, He's made His way toward the cross. He set His face there. And he starts talking to his disciples about his upcoming death. And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. How will the sorrow turn into joy? Because on the cross, Jesus would give himself up for his people. He would lay his life down for his bride. His very blood would become the wine that we partake of in Holy Communion. To remind us of his dying love for his bride. His blood is the wine that sustains us, that cleanses us. that remakes us, that saves us until the day we are with him and sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb to drink the wine in the Father's kingdom with him forever. That's what Jesus was doing that day at Cana in Galilee. (laughs) And it astounds me. we could not be more loved than we are in Christ. He's thought of everything. He's covered everything. He's fulfilled everything. He's done everything. And he will do everything. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for this. For these truths that just We could marinate in this for the rest of our lives. I mean, in some way, I wonder do we need anything else? (laughs) Lord, we just need this. We need to accept your love. So, Father, I pray that we would do it now. In Jesus' name.